thank you so much for coming back and listening to the show. Yeah. I'm your host, Kevin Pollack. Welcome to episode 18 of my Mrs. Maisel pod. Today, oh, very exciting. The return of Michael Zegan. Oh, baby. Yeah. As mentioned in it, we're going to discuss season two, episode eight. I just love talking to Michael Zegan. Thank you all of you who are writing to us. Michael, I think, has answered a couple of your questions. Pretty sure there's been two at least. He's just so great. And thank you for writing to him and to us at my at gmail.com. Continue to do so. I'm getting to as many uh, quickly as I can. And um, have you told everyone you've ever met about this podcast? We're depending on you. You know that, right? To stay afloat. It's on you. As it turns out, it's a word of mouth medium. And yeah. Rate, review, subscribe, do all those things. And then again, tell everyone you've ever met. Enough begging. Let's get to Michael Zegan, shall we? I do love talking to him. Please enjoy as much as I did in our time together. See you on the other side. Welcome back, Mr. Michael Zegan. Michael, welcome back, buddy. Thanks. Great to be back. Thanks <laughs> Thanks for making time to discuss this universe here in uh, Season 2, Episode 8. It's the road trip. Someday. It's called Someday. I think, because that's uh, the song at the end by The Strokes. Aha. And I seem to recall that that's what it was called. I once wrote a script called Someday. God, this was 100 years ago when I thought I could write screenplays, but really couldn't. It was just a really stupid comedy about an incredibly rich guy who has so many giant conglomerates that when he decides i've had it with daylight savings i'm not setting my clocks back or any of my company's clocks it actually affects world commerce <laughs> and um and nobody would make that well this is before i joined the wga back in 87 okay. and again if i could find it i'm sure it was just horrible but <laughs> he doubles down at some point and decides to add an eighth day of the week because everyone wants a three-day weekend. So every week would have a three-day weekend. And he calls the eighth day someday because <laughs> everyone's always saying they'll get things done on someday. Yeah. Wait, so so uh, focusing on this for a second. Yeah, uh, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> you wrote this before 87. Yeah. What did you write it on? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I had a word processor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like a little a pop word processor typewriter. No final draft. Not only no final draft, no real awareness of how to do a proper workaround. So I would just tab and indent all yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Sure. everything that needed to be in the center. <laughs> and you have no idea where a copy lies? Uh, yeah, I do. I have it in storage. And, okay. and, and before this airs, clearly I need to re-register the treatment of it before anyone hears this. Because it's not the in terms of comedy high concepts, it's not completely without merit. No, no, no. And I think it was, yeah, it was everyone's annoyance with the daylight savings crap. But then also loving Arthur so much. You know, the script for Arthur kicked around for like four or five years. And the studios basically said, who would want to make a movie about a rich, drunk guy? You know, uh -huh. And of course, it wouldn't pass the test today, I'm sure, in many ways. But yeah, just somebody with wielding that much power that could actually affect. I've only seen Arthur 2 on the rocks. Oh, <laughs> oh, well, the first one is page for page, possibly the best joke 
written comedy script of all time. I mean, right up there with Airplane. It's got so many jokes on every page. I would highly recommend you giving it a look-see. I will. Yeah. And it's a real, real tour de force. You know, acting drunk for me and for many people. I've yeah, very to. hard. Yeah. I guess the key I've heard is to play the person who's trying not to be found out. Right. <laughs> that they're drunk. Who's trying to actually cover it up. That's even harder. <laughs> it's all. Yeah. For me, drunk, happy, and sad. They're all <laughs> yeah, <laughs> laughing and crying, the two other impulses. Yeah. Speaking of which, this eighth episode of season two mm-hmm. starts out at the gaslight, of course, where Midge and Susie are preparing to go on the road. But first, a woman approaches, and I think it's Midge's first autograph? Is it sort of That's sad? what she says, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember yours? My first autograph. Or one of the first. Any sort of standout early? Oh, on. man, that's a good question. I mean, I'm sure there have been some standout ones. You know, <laughs> there have been times where, well, there was a girl I was walking. Um, I used to do the show Rescue Me. Yep. And I was walking, I believe, on the Upper West Side. And this girl just like charges out of the store that she had been in and grabs me and was sure. like, you know, she said she's been binging Rescue Me and she feels like she's a part of the show. Uh-oh. At this point, I was like, okay. And, and she's like, and now I'm seeing you. And uh, and I remember I signed something for her. But, you know, <laughs> my mother, she had this habit of any time, like, she would go to a garage sale or something, or like, she would, uh, you know, if the guy came over to fix the air conditioner, somehow it would come up that I was an actor and they wanted an autograph. And so I'd have to like, sign a headshot and give it to her to give to somebody. And it, yep. it was always like, how did it come up that I was an yeah. actor? Like, how does that come up? Yeah. You know? And, and she's like, no, he was talking about, uh, he was talking about acting or, or TV and, you know, and yep. one way or another. Yeah. But yeah, I used to get really frustrated by that. Now I don't care. Right. Yeah. I signed my first suggest. I signed my first autograph when I was six. I hadn't learned handwriting. So uh-huh. I had to, is it called when you're printing, when you're not writing your, is that, but which is cursive? Cursive is script. Yeah, it was not that. It was whatever the other, whatever the six-year-old version of, you know, writing uh, your name instead of signing your name. But yeah. the reason was my 13-year-old cousin, Terry Zucker, took me to see the Dave Clark Five, Sonny and Cher with the opening act, just to date myself marvelously. No, I've heard this story before, actually. Oh, oh you you probably saw it in the book. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. I Yes, the book. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, we waited to get autographs after the show. And by no, no, the no side... finish the story. Tell the story like you were oh. going to tell it. I... <laughs> okay, well, si... I mean, the, the listeners don't know this. Yeah, the upshot is that the Dave Clark Five, there was a moment in time in 64 when they were, it was a coin toss between them and the Beatles. That that's how big they were. One of them was going to inch the other one out. We know the history of that. But that just that's just how big they were. So I at six, I'd memorized the entire first album. Side stage door, there were some steps leading up to a platform. We're waiting for them to come out the side stage door onto this platform to get their autographs or anything. Just to me and 50 other 13-year-old girls. We waited way too long. And finally, my cousin Terry said, Kevin, you know their songs. Get up there and sing their songs while we're waiting. So there's probably a puff of smoke as this little six-year-old Pitcher ran up the stairs. That's how quickly I wanted to be in that spotlight. I started singing their songs and bless their souls, these poor 13 year old girls. They came to get someone's autograph. So a couple of them asked for mine because the Dave Clark Five were clearly not coming out this door. And I had to print, you know, big, <laughs> big pencil. Yeah. 
Well, let's hope they save those. <laughs> I can't imagine. But uh, that sort of moment also, the reason I asked you was because it is a cheap thrill, but it's also a moment in time or can be in terms of the elixir that you know what i'm sorry i just remembered i just remembered yes uh so when i was i guess i was 12 nice i was tiny tim in a christmas carol in a professional production in new jersey you know in a big theater it it was like a 2000 seat theater whoa i got to miss a month of school it was my first professional gig there was an open call i begged my parents to take me to it they reluctantly agreed because i believe there was an estate sale nearby so they um (laughs) they you know they thought i wasn't going to get it they thought okay here's a life lesson you know you want to be an actor kid like here you go let's teach him a lesson sure and i was last i remember i was i showed up probably like a half hour late and they agreed to see me and do you remember affecting a little tiny tim british accent I don't think I had a British accent. I don't, I, you know what? That's a good question because I, I definitely don't remember that. Yeah. But regardless, I got the part, you know, obviously, obviously I was going to get it. And, uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, afterwards, I remember, you know, my mom used to take me to a lot of children's theater and afterwards they would always, these, like, let's say it was Pinocchio, like they would come out afterwards and they'd sign the playbill, sure. but they'd sign it Pinocchio. And so uh, after this show, like people came up to me and I remember thinking like, or even saying, I remember saying like, do you want me to sign it my name or Tiny Tim? Wow. And some people asked for Tiny Tim and some people asked for my <laughs> name. So that was, that was my first autograph. Pretty adorable that you asked also. Yeah. Cause you wanted to be of service. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it certainly brings a smile to people's faces. It's rare these days. Cause I believe, you know, Autographs have been uh, kind of supplanted by the selfie. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. But, um, you know, nobody carries a pen really anymore. And <laughs> Yeah. Although the playbill is still, I think, a time honored tradition if you can get. Yeah. If you, you, but you have to wait at the stage door. You have to, you know, you never know when they're coming out. If they're coming out, I've done plays where, you know, I, I always come out, but like there are actors who are like, I'm not going out, whether it's a matinee or something, you know, they just want to sleep and, and that's their call. Sure. Did you sense that elixir that I, spoke of in terms of at 12, not just doing the play, but, you know, it is a weird sensation that someone wants something from you because they were either moved or enjoyed your performance. Yeah, I don't even know if it's that. I think they just want it because it's what you do (laughs) or it's what you used to do. Yeah. I just remember being smitten. That's why I was asking if you had any memory at all about the experience of I'm sure there's a lot of aspects of that experience, not just in your parents face on getting the gig (laughs) you thought i wasn't gonna book it (laughs) so back to midge's first autograph she clearly is taken by it i don't think Susie was right but Susie has typed up an itinerary for the road trip and is very concerned about the time showing up on time for the departure thereby further establishing midge might be late on occasion Mm -hmm. and then jackie bless him shows up with the light the license plates to choose from to put on Susie's quote unquote borrowed car from her mother. Yeah, that was so great. And another great reminder of uh, how wonderful our fallen actor. Yeah. You know, I I also didn't remember him in that scene and uh, we miss him. He's, he's, he's such a presence. Yeah. 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 I remember I never had scenes with him, of course. So I would see him only at the table reads. Right. And he was the most casually dressed for a table read individual i think i will ever see and i remember busting his chops about it once and he just sort of laughed like what do i fucking care and it was just so (laughs) him it was so perfect 
So there you go. On to the Weisman apartment where Midge walks in on Abe listening to Ethan's children's oh, records. Yeah. I really like this. He's doing <laughs> research. Yeah, what is he doing research? It's about computers. Well, his first thing was the voice activation, right? Oh, okay. Siri can't even get it straight all these years later. Mm -hmm. And so he was designing or involved in the designing of voice activation or voice noting. So he wanted to find the most simple spoken words for his contraption to try to turn into script. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Midge mentions that she signed her first autograph, and, and Abe's response really made me laugh. He just, almost like he didn't understand, they want you to write on a piece of paper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. going to forge her signature from now on. Yeah. That's yeah, funny. Who wrote this episode? It was Dan, right? Uh, writer of credit is Kate. Fodor. Oh, that's right. Kate yeah. Fodor. Yeah. She did a great job. And directed by Jamie Babbitt. Jamie Babbitt, yep. Love Jamie. You did a motion picture with her. I did, uh, yes, the stand-in with Drew Barrymore. And I actually met her. I shot a guest star on Girls, on the show Girls. And that's where I met Jamie. Right. So I've worked with her three times. And now she's uh, she's really blowing up. I mean, she did uh, Only Murders in the Building. Yeah. And the new League of Their Own. Right. Well, well-deserved. She's really great. Yeah. And I remember she did the big uh, family dinner scene. Where... I thought that was in this episode, but it's not. It's in Seven. It's a, it was a previous one. Yeah. Yeah. And I was surprised to remember or be reminded that she directed two in a row. I would have never thought that. It was tough. Those were some tough days. Yeah. I mean, you know, because now we have, what is it, three weeks to film an episode. Then it was two weeks. And yeah. those extra, you know, five days really make a difference because we had some long days. Yes. And those dinner scenes in particular. Well, that was three days. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember we were flying to L.A. for something. All of uh -huh. us, and we each had, some of us had to stay behind and had to take a private plane, You're which right. sounds great in theory, but it's not. It's, you know, these private planes, there's no TV in front of you. <laughs> Your seats can't go back. It's the lie flat on the coast to coast. Yeah. When you need to sleep, that really does uh, make a difference. And best. it's hard yeah. to fathom that a private jet, as otherworldly as it might sound, can be a lot less comfortable yeah 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 oh one of the other great things about this little moment scene is when mid says you know when you saw me accidentally in the catskills it was not my regular act right and i'm gonna be performing in town soon and he, he has no interest <laughs> it was really a reminder of the sort of ebb and flow and up and down nature of you know wanting to impress your parents, even if she just wants to get over the hump of the secret she kept initially, at some point, you, you know, we're going to seek their approval, right? Right. Um, and it was tough going. At the end of the next episode, which involves the telethon, I don't know if you remember, but there's a magical moment at the end of it where I won't tip it, but she does get their approval in the most magical way. And the most unexpected. Oh, way. they watch her on TV. Right. Yeah, I remember that. That was yeah. great. That's a great episode, too. Oh, man. But it's specifically Tony seeing the neighbors across the way also watching. Right, right, that, right. That's the beat that, yeah. that Rose says, is this really happening? You know, or I guess this is real. Yeah. So Stage Deli is where Midge is treating Imogene to a guilt-motivated I'm sorry lunch. 
I guess, before she goes on the road. And another amazing performance by Bailey, who plays Imogene. Yes. Yeah. I talked to Bailey on the podcast. And oh, you did? Really? She was a great guest as well. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Talking to everybody. Yeah. We're all going to spill it. <laughs> so I really love that scene, too, because Imogene just is completely focused on where are the stars. Yeah. Oh, and... uh there's an appearance by Michael Torpy, who plays Eugene, who's another fellow comic. He comes over, yeah. and I grew up with him. We went to elementary school together. Is there a chance he also auditioned for Tiny Tim? Uh, I don't remember him being an actor back okay. then. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, to be honest, he was. I think he was a year below me, and I don't even think he really knew me. But I just remember him. I think we might have been on the same like Little League team one year. Huh. I just remember him, and, and I remember... I think he really got into acting, I think, in high school. Right. And, you know, I was doing it from the time I was a kid. But I, I remember hearing rumblings that he was trying to get into acting, and he's doing great. He hosted yeah. a game show, too. Oh, great. Recently. So, yeah. I did confront him about it. I think we were... Actually, I don't even think it was during Maisel. I think we did a reading together or something, and I said, like, we went to elementary school together. And there, there was one episode where another guy, also from my town was in the episode as well and yeah so it was like the three of us and it's just quite bizarre really yeah yeah i mean we're from new jersey it's not you know not so far-fetched because we're so close but yeah it's still you know this business is tough and to have three people from the same little town in new jersey make it to tv you know it's it's pretty wild yeah i didn't have any in my school growing up. well (laughs) that's okay yeah 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 it's okay being you know the one uh huh. And everyone's signing the yearbook. You're going to make Wait, it someday. What about Dave Rigetti? Well, sure. Outside of show business, I can't quite consider him. I just met where I might run into some kid from school that auditions oh, in okay. Los Angeles, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, no, you're Yankee pitching the no hitter on 4th of July, 1983, yeah. Dave Rigetti. Yes, the great pitching coach of the There's a Rigetti the High School in uh, California somewhere. I just saw that today. You saw like an announcement named after him? No, it's it's some some I think some like prospect or something. It said he graduated from Rigetti High School in San Molinas. Is that right? Or mm. I know you're from San Francisco or that. San Francisco, San Jose is actually where Dave Rigetti and I went to school together. So there was some it's called Rigetti High School. I don't know if it's, it's I gotta a, look it up. Maybe it's a baseball high school. I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Would you have attended a baseball high school? No. I <laughs> I'm I love watching baseball. I'm terrible at playing baseball. So you didn't excel. Okay. Well, that's fair. No, no, no. Let's see. Oh, yeah. After the stage deli, they're packing up the car. Yes. And this uh, this was filmed right down the street from me, basically. It's uh, in the West Village. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's called Gay Street. So. And did you go down and watch them because they were so close? or I didn't. I, not this tell. time. Yeah, not this time. I don't recall why. I must have been busy or something. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, it. you know, they filmed a bunch and, and I try to, to visit as much as I can. Right. It's always fun, especially if I'm working. You know, if I'm filming that day and they're filming a few blocks from me, it's always a treat. Yeah. I remember I walked over once when they were the scene where Midge was because it was near um, where I was staying uh-huh. a little east of Midtown. But they were shooting the luncheon when she's performing stand-up at the Kennedy fundraiser. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, that was near you? There was one time where it was during the first season, and they were shooting at the Village Vanguard Yeah. on 7th Ave. And at the time, I literally lived across the street from the right. Village Vanguard. So <laughs> I, 
I was hanging out with them for a bit and it was a night shoot. Um, you know, it was the scene with Luke. Uh, they're smoking the joint outside. And, oh, yeah. Um, the, with the band. Yes, with the band. And um, I went out that night with a friend and I got back real late and I was, you know, a little bit inebriated. It was like it must have been almost five in the morning <laughs> and they were still out there. <laughs> and wow. and I kind of snuck my way back in because I didn't want them seeing me and judging me. And, <laughs> Judging you for coming yeah. in at five a.m. Yeah, I'm. I'm not a big drinker, but that night I I happened to go out. It was somebody's birthday. Uh huh. Let's just call it that. <laughs> so yeah, they're packing up the car, hitting the road on the Eisenhower Penis Tour, as uh, I think Susie <laughs> calls it. And oh, on stage that night, Midge ends up talking about Abe working for Bell Labs, which right. leads to a little difficulty. She's interrupted by the club manager exiting the kitchen, shouting for everyone to leave because of a kitchen fire. Right. So it's the beginning of the tour, and already shit's going sideways. Mm -hmm. Did you think it was going to be all bells and whistles? <laughs> no, I was relieved and glad that it got bad immediately, because not just the early days of the road, almost any day of the road. I mean, Steve Martin wrote about it wonderfully in his Born Standing Up book, which I highly recommend the audio book, because you hear Steve Martin telling these stories. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Kind of amazing. Yeah, the... Oh, man, the road. Oh, buddy. It's just... I made a point pretty early on of never allowing it to feel like a job. So I would never go out for like six, eight weeks the way a lot of guys would. Mm -hmm. I would go out every other weekend so I could break it up and just didn't want to be that to take over my life ever. Would you drive or... Whenever possible. But in the early days when I moved to L.A., I was still getting most of my highest paid gigs back in San Francisco. So I did that drive. Okay. That's six hour drive. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> Even though the flight's 45 minutes, you know, you got to watch that budget. Yeah. And which we're yeah. getting a great taste of here as well. Because, of course, the fire breaking out means you're not getting paid. Get off stage, get out. Next, we see them there at a motel gas station. And that's when I think Midge gets on the phone. That is that when she calls me? Uh, no, that's the next call. Okay. Oh, sorry. The next morning, Midge calls Joel and Ethan, and Joel's very concerned about Midge being on the road, yes, and asks to speak to Susie. This is that scene. Yeah, this motel has a couple of scenes involved, and one of them is the next morning when she goes to the booth and calls you. I love that scene. Tell me a little bit about that. So we've talked your last visit on the podcast about they need the actors off camera to be there for a phone right. call. Yes, so you didn't get to go to Paris. I imagine this was done. No, I, I got to go stage. to Paris. No, on this one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On this one, you just had to go to Brooklyn. Yeah. And be on just the Brooklyn. Stage. Yeah. Yeah. Although, but, uh, well, yes, right. Although, no, you know what's funny? I mean, they didn't drive me to wherever they filmed that phone booth scene. No. So what's with that? Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't I get to go there? I guess by episode eight of season two they were no longer transporting people to do <laughs> off camera lines i never thought about that that's interesting i mean because rachel was definitely there when i did uh my coverage right that might have been what they decided when they're back on the sound stage they'll have rachel to do yeah. yours yeah yeah, I can't wait to talk to them to find out where they shot, unless you know i don't know but it looked sort of like westchester maybe yeah I was thinking maybe an hour out of town. Yeah. I was wondering that because it looked like where I was holed up. Right. During uh, COVID. Yeah, yeah. I do love that scene, though. Yeah, it's a great scene. And 
<laughs> Ethan is very funny in it. Yeah. He picks up the phone and then hangs it up. Yeah. I remember it was interesting because it was like, it, it, you know, it was one of those scenes where it showed how much he cared about her. And mm -hmm. I'm always happy to kind of remind the audience about that, about their love for each other. Because, uh, yeah, Amy and Dan are very strict about that. Yeah. To follow through on their sort of idea and promise from the beginning, which is that yeah. this would be a Lucy and Desi. But I also love the Joel and Susie relationship. Oh, man, I love that. You know, because I feel like their personalities, they're more similar than one would think or that or each would think. That each would admit. Yes. And it's the cause of the consternation. Yeah. One of the causes is that they're much more similar. And they, and they both share this love of Midge. Think they're defending what's best for Midge. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But man, oh, man, does Joel just get in Susie's face. <laughs> But they also, I feel like they get each other's sense of humor. Yeah. I don't know. I just think they share more than they think they do. Mm -hmm. And under any other circumstances, they might actually like get along and be friends. Right. Yeah. Will we see that? I don't know. Only time will tell <laughs> yeah. as we're shooting the fifth and final season. We still don't know. No. I also liked it at the end of this when Susie wants a break from driving and asks Midge to take over and we find out Midge can't drive, never has. Well, why would you need to? But brought her pink driving gloves. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, she grew up in the city. There's no need to drive. I have, you know, countless friends who grew up in the city and don't know how to drive. Never learned, yeah. No. It's also true of people I know who were raised in London. Oh, in London, yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. Another club on the road, another motel up next. Uh, Midge is attempting to get show ready in a supply closet. She takes the stage to uh, about five or so people in the audience. Oh, that's right. Yes, that was Philly show. Right. I will tell you that there are, sometimes you, on the road, you'll be asked to do three shows on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. If they think you can really sell tickets, they'll force you to do a third show. And often those third shows, not five, but if the room holds 350 and there's 75 people there, it feels like five. Because <laughs> you can see all the empty seats. Well, let's say you're asked to do three sets. How long is each one? Well, that's the thing. You know, they're supposed to be close to an hour. Okay. The difficult nature is I would, as most people, pride myself on, although doing a lot of the same material, I would mix up the order. I would, you know, it's all about right, making it right. seem like it's the first time you've said these words. Of course. But also you've built some transitions from story to story or bridges, as we call them. And, you know, they're incredibly helpful. And... You've worked on them, so you have a point of pride. But by that third show, you get to halfway through the act, and you're like, did I do this bit already? <laughs> and the truth is, yes, you did it twice. Yeah. question is, did you do it thrice? Right. And at any age, doesn't matter. The brain is like, oh, yeah, I did this how many times? Two, three? Yeah. So that's a little insight into the multi-show on the road. But also, sometimes when the crowd is super small like that, you purposely take your act off the rails and just talk to them and it becomes one of your favorite shows of the weekend yeah yeah i've gone to see some friends you know do stand up and uh sometimes it's the late show and they're just you know it's time to just ask the audience yeah. and kind of riff on that and actually i i mean if you're able to do that i think right. that's one of the best times ever watching comedy if you're able to just riff on people and you know make the audience laugh based on i mean it's terrifying as an audience member Sure. You know, I want to sit as far away as possible. I do not want any attention drawn to myself, but right. at other people's expense, you know, yeah, totally fine with it. 
Yeah, if you can improvise, which is one of the things that I talk about occasionally about how not only brilliant Amy writing all the monologues for the Midge character when she does her stand-up, but just the style of her stand-up, the stream of consciousness, it just doesn't exist, yes. really. No one's improvising their entire act, <laughs> with very, very few exceptions. But the ability to do that is something all of us need to learn in order to survive. Right. I had a guy come up on stage once while I was performing. He was heckling oh, me in the front row and he was just wouldn't stop. And I just went after him and buried him. And he stood <laughs> up and he was six, five, 200 and something. And he came around to the side stage steps and walked right up on the stage. And he was drunk. And I thought, this is going to go really, really badly for me. So as he got closer, as soon as he was within my arm's reach and a little more, I tossed him the microphone. He caught it. I jumped off the stage and got into his seat. <laughs> and started heckling him. And what happened? It was magical. I mean, the audience <laughs> lost their minds, and he quickly found out that he was no good at telling jokes. Oh. And they hated him. And he put the mic back in the stand and walked off the stage. It was, <laughs> it was magical. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you really do have to figure out what to do in a situation with five or less people. That's where you're going to find your metal. Later, as they checked in the motel for the night, it's way worse than the others. I love this one. This is the one where she doesn't even want to sit down anywhere yeah. or put her luggage anywhere. But it's revealed that she lets Susie know she's been recording her snoring. Right. To prove that she's snoring. Susie's not only embarrassed, but super upset with me. <laughs> I, was, I like where she's like, uh, wait, did I die for a second? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to Alex about the recording sessions because you know it was Alex snoring, right? Yeah. And I don't think they, I maybe they did wild lines, but I feel like it was directed. Okay, in this snore session, I yeah, need you right, to be, right. <laughs> I need you to sound like a serial killer. Yeah. Then we go to the roadside diner. Susie has a rash. And then we find like little pellets growing out of her face. It's an odd looking <laughs> rash, which is hilarious to me. I like the guy with the kid. Oh, that was really funny. <laughs> as soon as she swears for the first yeah, time. He, he like picks it, his kid up and... They're mid-breakfast, I think. <laughs> yeah. And she just looks into what, a knife or a spoon or something and says, oh, ah, yeah. fuck. Oh. And then he just lifts the kid out of the seat and <laughs> out they go. There's no conversation. I know. I love that. The kid doesn't say, daddy, wait. Uh, it was so well executed that moment, that beat. Yeah. So Susie needs to run to the drugstore and then Midge calls home to check in and that's when she talks to Abe. He's being still pretty distant and cold as Rose is um, throwing a gathering in their apartment. Oh, right, right. This is yeah. the uh, the uh, Imogene's uh, baby shower. Yeah, and he hangs up because Abe hears the word potato salad. <laughs> potato salad? Yeah, he just walks away from the phone. <laughs> but yeah, that's also obviously when Midge realizes that she forgot the baby shower, which is rather unfortunate. And then the speakerphone comes back. Abe's contraption, the speakerphone, as Midge from the road talks to the gathering at the party in Imogene. Right. Oh, and Abe is right before that. He's telling the the, the Twilight Zone yes. episode, which has been an ongoing gag. Yeah. And Jamie, in her production notes, adds little extras sometimes at the bottom of the scene. And this one, in fact, says Abe is describing the Twilight Zone episode time enough at last. She gave okay. us the title that's, of the episode. Well, that's a famous episode with the... Burgess Meredith. It's one of the most famous ones. Yeah, sure. the, the glasses. Yeah. Well, don't spoiler alert 75 oh, well. years later. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. So um, 
we are uh, a bit Twilight Zone obsessed over here. So we love the moment that they made that a runner and, and that Abe was also obsessed. And so, yeah, it does. He's, he's entertaining a couple of guys and explaining the episode to them. Yeah. Yeah. Including the guy who plays uh, Don. He's been in a few episodes. He's He, he worked at uh, my plastics company. Right. Chris um, Churden. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but yeah, he was, he was in... Uh, I think he did about three episodes. He was one of Joel's pals, but he's really funny. I, I love how he's he's so clueless. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm gonna look him up. Chris Churdon, C H I R D O N. Yeah. yeah, I do love that too. Yeah, the clueless nature. So yeah, Rose is very curt. She's very upset. Imogene is supportive of Midge and thanking her for the beautiful party, despite her not being there. And there was, you know, I, I don't exactly recall what it was, but there was more to that scene that they cut. Ah. Yeah. I know I had like a little scene or something that was cut. I mean, these, you know. At the shower? Yeah. Not like it obviously mattered because it clearly didn't. But I appreciate you mentioning it because folks should know there aren't a lot of scenes cut. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I couldn't even tell you what it was. It's totally escaped my mind. But I remember there was something that didn't make it in, which, yeah, that is surprising because they rarely cut anything. Yeah. The scripts come in long, but because everyone's talking so fast, it yeah. still <laughs> comes down closer to an hour. And this one, yeah, this one was 45 minutes. This was relatively short. So. Oh, my goodness. So this scene really must have sucked if they <laughs> if they cut it. Well, let's blame you just for shits and games. Yeah, sure. Sure. One. Next, we see them in the Holland Tunnel. Which apparently was all green screen. Yep. That would be my guess. It didn't look like it. I, I mean, it did I actually, never, not for a moment. Yeah. But I remember I asked Rachel how they did that and she said it was green screen. Really impressive. And also nice to know that from the first time it was used, the Holland Tunnel was a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> all through the decades. And they show up at the Harrisburg Club. And okay. this is the one where, let's see, they decided to sleep in the car. Oh, right. That's the one where the gig was canceled because it was raining, I think. Oh, okay. Something. Yes. Yeah. And they slept in the car. So that was before the tunnel, no? And then we cut to them and they were in the Holland Tunnel okay. the next day. Anxious to get back to the gig in New York, which is when Joel shows up and he's not cut from the scene. Yeah. I was watching this and it reminded me of, so the guy who plays, I guess it's the owner's, what did you say? It's it's my cousin's kid or something like that? <laughs> yeah. So that guy, you know, he was a really cool guy, a really nice guy. His name was uh, Johnny something. And, you know, the whole time we're talking and then all of a sudden he like broke out with this Irish accent. It turned <laughs> out he was Irish. Oh. And, you know, he was doing his American accent the whole time and like could have fooled me. I mean, like I had no idea he was Irish. He was like, please don't tell anybody that I'm Irish because That's you know hilarious. I don't want them finding. He thought he was going to lose the job if they found out that he was Irish. He was like really Johnny paranoid Hopkins. about that. Johnny, Johnny Hopkins. Hopkins, yeah, yeah. He was a nice kid, and he was good too. And yes, he really was. I mean, you know, when I first read that, I was like, another Joel punching scene. Like, why? Why is he? <laughs> he's you know he's clearly got some anger management issues. Yeah, because you know in the first season I had that big fight scene at the end, and well, but if I may. Yeah. I mean, when you beat the guys on the way out and you walk away yes. saying she's good, she's good. Yeah. That's one of the most powerful moments. No, it's it's great. It's great. Yeah. But then so I was like, well, what did they need this for? And I remember one of the writers was like, you know, it's redeeming. It's redeeming. And I was like, yeah, but he already redeemed himself. Like, why? Why are we keep doing this? But, you know, watching it, it's great. I love it. 
it's I guess all these years later, it's like, oh yeah, sure, why not? Uh, oh, good, you got a little perspective, maybe. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. No, I mean, I love it. Believe me, I do understand your position because he's so much deeper than someone who should ever be portrayed as a thug or just someone who can't control physical violence is pretty weak. Well, yeah, and I, I guess for me, it's like. You know, I've never gotten in a fight a day in my life. So <laughs> it's. And people need to know all these characters are a little bit us, whether we want to admit that yeah. or not. Yeah. But I, I just, I guess part of it is that I just wonder if people are going to believe it or, you know, are people going to believe that somebody like me could get in a fight? But yeah, I mean, <sighs> sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, you watch it, it's like fun. In your case, that might not be bad PR. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I definitely have it in me. I, I definitely, you know, there are times I want to punch somebody. Yeah, but, uh, I imagine inanimate objects have definitely suffered <laughs> from your uh, anger. But it's really played out great the way Ricky, the character, treats these women and how he cowers right, right, right. to you. And it also spoke of the day, you know, 1959. It, it spoke of, of all that. And, and I love the guy who is, I guess, the owner. Yeah, and Susie gets comes out of the closet, and she's like, "And you also need a new plunger." Yeah. This one, you know, and the guy is just like, "Okay, yeah." <laughs> it's just great delivery from that guy, and a great callback to Susie and her yes, and her plunger, uh huh, and her vast knowledge now. Yeah. Oh, so you already did those Catskills episodes, I assume. Oh yeah, yeah. We yeah. Got, talked to Zach Levi. Oh and, nice. Uh, Saul Rubinek. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Those were my favorite. I mean, still, I think to this day, yeah, those three were just the best. The magical and the road trip nature of it for all of the cast and crew to be staying yes. out of town together. There's something about a road trip for the whole company that really bonded everybody. Absolutely, yeah, in a different way. And also, those scenes were so beautifully done that and your bowling stuff and all that, oh, and yeah. the heart to heart. When I spoke to Will, we spoke about. Actually, the next episode. And uh, we broke down Joel and, you know, Moish's heart to heart when he gives you the check. And so I should probably bring that up now, even though it's out of context, because I was saying I'm going to be biased and so are you. But it is my personal favorite scene that I'm in in the entire oh, yeah? series. Uh, yeah. The father and son nature of it. Also, we just in that episode established that Joel's running things. He's at the desk. It's Moish who comes in and says there are problems at the dock or whatever uh -huh. with the trucks. Like, are you going to take care of this sort of thing? And there's no foreshadowing that Moish sees how he wants his son to not have to suffer through this. We just don't see it coming when he sits him down and gives him the check. And anyways, I so I just want to get your take on that scene if it has any place in your memory or. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember I got to, you know, I haven't rewatched it. So I don't remember it, remember it, but I obviously, you know, remember it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that scene. Just in terms of get out, kid, you know? Yeah. Get out yeah. and start your life and whatever that's because I be. think, you know, at that point, Joel is sort of a lost soul and he still hasn't found his purpose. And yeah. You know, and then then with your help, I mean, you know, I think up until that point, there's obviously love between them because it's a father son relationship, but they're very like volatile towards each other. I don't think Joel is in a good place in his life. And he's sort of taking it out on the people who are closest to him. And he, yeah. I don't think he necessarily loves working at his father's company, which, you know, he was trying to avoid from the beginning. Yes. So it was I mean, it, it showed moisture in a new light as well. Yeah. 
just the fact that he does care about him. And, you know, obviously he cares about him. You even see that in the bowling scene. He's like, you know, you need to go out and meet a girl and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But here he was actually like giving him money and saying, you know, take it and go. Get out of here. Yeah. And the idea that, like I said, in the same episode, it just establishes that Joel is running things. And I remember reading it and then watching it originally and thinking it certainly seems as if Joel could be finding his place. As much as he hated the idea, clearly wanted to avoid it, he is really good at it. Getting the bank loan, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, fixing what was wrong with the books. Yeah, the books as well as a piece of machinery. Oh, right. right, Show you with the wrench thing, you know. And there was a sense of, wow, I remember reading it anyways before we knew the rest of the season. Is this a transition? Is this where Mm -hmm. he finds himself all the more impactful is this one scene that when you read it the first time, oh, Jesus, he's saying you're fired, get out. <laughs> yeah. And the little banter between them about the girl with the braces and, I, you know, why'd you think my mouth was bleeding? I thought you were in a fight. Again, <laughs> the reference to him being a thug, you know, a lot of fighting. <laughs> right. Well, oh, but, you, you know, there's that scene in season one where you're teaching the young me uh, how to box. Yes. You remember that? Yeah. Were you wearing the wig? <laughs> <laughs> And we filmed that in the basement of that synagogue. Right. Yeah. And also the wig when I was stealing your bar mitzvah money. That's the same scene. Oh, 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 right, 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 right. I see what you're saying. Right, right, right. I mean, you're the one who taught him how to fight. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not with that much anger. <laughs> yeah. But proper form. Yes. Then do you remember me going first to you and saying, I don't think this because it wasn't 60,000 it was a lot less. Yes. And at first before I even brought up the nerve to go to Dan and say we need to change this. I remember bouncing off you out of insecurity saying this can't be right, right? What was it at first? I think it was closer to 20. Okay. 1000. And what we deduced that that well wasn't... I did the math cuz this 1959 in 1959 my parents bought a four bedroom house in the promise of the suburbs for 17,000. So oh, wow. when you look at the check and you say that dad this is a house 20,000 did still make sense, but the start your life check needed to be much more. And Dan agreed immediately. Uh-huh. What is it now? 60? 60. Yeah. And, that, okay. and then Dan said, yeah, let's, let's make that bigger. Again, you get the same effect, which is only 60,000 when you're watching in 2000. Yeah. Whatever. But of course, yeah. In 59. Yeah. Crazy. Inflation. Right. Okay. So you set things straight with Ricky and the owner of the nightclub, and then walk out. And then Mitch has this interesting line to Susie. Sometimes to make things work in a man's world, you need a man. And it was, you know, it, it's sort of the opposite of what's usually a through line of an episode or a season or a show. Uh, so it was almost rising above the battle of the sexes and just calling out the actual unfairness of that. Mm-hmm. You know? It isn't really, thank goodness we got a man around. It's really, why the fuck do we need a guy to do this? You know, why can't we, why do we have to take this shit until a man steps in and in a man's world to fix it? Yeah. You know, it's pretty great. And then the final scene is the Weissman apartment. Midge returns home to the aftermath of Imogene's baby shower. I just love this because it's, it's late. It's, um, you know, after that gig almost not getting paid and also just being on the road and she's finally home and it's been a couple of days and rose has just not cleaned up 
And Ned's is just, how, how have you, oh no, this is your mess. <laughs> and there's something about the back to reality nature of coming back from the road that yeah. without having to say that, that again, as a comedian spoke to me in volumes, and I hope it wasn't lost on the audience that there's out there on the road where you know it has its romantic side and, and it's us against them it's braving a new world and all of that and learning your craft and honing your skills and every time you come home to reality it is a shock like re-entering the space station from walking outside i mean it really is and very subtly and wonderfully staged in that final scene <laughs> one other thing yeah that i loved which was such a little beat but during the baby shower scene when uh we're talking to midge on the on the uh speakerphone and i forget how it happens but archie asks something and, and midge tells him to ask abe for the the <laughs> to take a photograph or to if he could take a photograph right. and abe just goes no like <laughs> like ask him to use his camera and abe was just like yeah no yeah I don't no. remember exactly how it went, but I, yeah. I just know yeah. Tony's brilliance. Tony has shining through those line readings on the moment of those that those moments that just kill me. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, thanks so much. Amazing yeah. again, and that is season two, episode eight. Yeah, it was one of the shorter ones, but a great glimpse and the first of its kind. And I'm not going to tell you if it's the last of Susie and Midge out there on the road. Well, thanks, buddy. Very, very Thank much. You. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Again, we're only in season two, so. I'll be back. Three more seasons. To please come <laughs> yeah. back and let's break down another one. For sure. All right, pal. All right. Take care. You too. There he goes, the great Michael Ziggin. Oh, we talked about so much. Oh, early days for him. First autograph. Got into mine. Of course, uh, yeah, I just, I love his take is so Zegan. It's so specific to the person I know, and now I hope you know him a little better from listening to his take on all these things. But the open road for Susie and Midge was the episode Someday, season two, episode eight. And yeah, I obviously had a lot to share about my own experiences out there on the road. Yeah, there's a lot of drilling down the great nuances of our co-stars, performances, and also uh, Jamie Babbitt directing first and only time guest director did two episodes back to back season two episodes seven and eight and this one was credited to writer kate fodor on the show she was involved in the show first couple of seasons minimum probably more and she got the written by on that and yeah just a tremendous conversation with michael zegan no don't you think Oh, my goodness, yes. If you have follow-up questions for Michael Zegan, write to us by mrsmazelpot at gmail.com. And maybe it's time to open up the old mailbag. What do you think? Sure. Why not? I've got plenty of emails to read. Yeah. Let's open up the old mailbag, shall we? Today's email question into my mrsmazelpot at gmail.com comes from Ottawa, Canada. Shaquille. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He writes, or they write, I should say. Pardon me. My name is Shaquille from Ottawa, Canada. I started watching Mrs. Maisel about a year after launch and absolutely loved it. I spent most of the first watch 
constantly amazed that Midge was played by the same actor that was Rachel in House of Cards. Seems like a completely different human. What range? Two exclamation points. This summer, I visited NYC, specifically my visit to Washington Square, and a show at the Comedy Cellar sparked a desire to watch the series again, which I binged. And this time, I took in the brilliance of all the other actors, including you. I grew up watching your movies and really enjoyed you and A Few Good Men. We'll be honest, I didn't fully appreciate you. That's allowed. Now I do, and I'm really grateful for this podcast. Thank you. I am now on my second rewatch. Well done. And I am still picking up things I missed. That is the thing, isn't it, folks? Yeah, that's the thing. There's so much going on in every episode. Just beautiful show. I just found your Johnny Carson appearance with your impression of Peter Falk and Woody Allen. Amazing. Do you still do stand-up? Do you ever perform in Canada or perhaps NYC? If so, I would love to come see you. Maybe a comedy special on Amazon or Netflix. It would do well, I am sure. That's all. I have lots of questions about the sets and the cars, but we'll come back for another email. This one was just to show some love. Thanks again, Shaquille. Well, you did ask a question. Am I still doing stand-up? And thank you for all your comments. Again, folks, it doesn't have to be a question. Just comments. Write to us by MrsMazelPod at gmail.com. And thank you, Shaquille. And forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name. I do do stand-up just at the time of this recording. Went out and did a comedy club for a weekend for the first time in forever. It was the Comedy Connection in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, which I loved. And I highly recommend if you're in the area, go see shows there. Oh, what a well-run club. I hadn't done a club in maybe eight or nine years. You know, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. What a trip. And, well, I'm going to venture to say I still got it. A little bit, a little bit. According to the audience's reaction, not my opinion at all. According to them, I still got it. That is all of our mailbag time. And so let's wrap up the show. Next episode, pretty exciting. Season two, episode nine of the series. And yeah, so watch that and gear up for the next episode. And we'll see you then. Please be kind to each other. In the meantime, I'll see you in my dreams. Thank you. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.